finally Job has his day with God. It is a moment that many of us have said we wanted someday. A chance to come to God and tell God how we feel and ask God questions we don't understand. Possibly you have made that statement before when I get in front of God, I'm going to ask Him this, this, and this. Maybe you've heard somebody else say, yeah, when I see God, I'm going to tell Him this, and I'm going to ask this, and this is how I'm going to come to God. Chance to look God in the eyes and ask why. Tell God everything we think He needs to hear. Job has this experience. There's a lot to be learned from it. Job's experience is a great example of what it will look like for all of us. Job is our representative as he stands before God, both as a man and as a general example of mankind. If you've ever wondered what it would be like when you stand before God, we're going to learn this morning. I see three positions that Job takes before God as he faces God that all of us will eventually take. And I want to look at those together with you this morning. Number one, the first position that we see Job take when facing God, we see a man before his maker. It's interesting that God says, before he goes into all of his questioning of Job, he tells Job, dress yourself like a man. In Genesis chapter 1, the first chapter of the book, which literally means the beginning. That's what Genesis means. It's the origin, the beginning of something. In chapter 1 of the beginning, we are told that God created man... And he created them male and female. And it's interesting that when God addresses Job, he tells Job to dress yourself like a man. The probably most literal term is gird your loins. And it's a military term that deals with getting ready for battle. The ESV says, dress for action. So it's not just about getting dressed, but it's about as a man getting ready for something that you are about to endure. Dress for action. God says there's a way that you are to dress for action like a man. We see a man before his maker. We see that there is a way that a man ought to be. God clearly is saying there's a certain way that a man ought to be. Job's getting ready to face God. And God says, Job, you get ready to face me like a man. It is crucially important that we are unashamed and unafraid. To declare that there is such a thing as a man and a woman. And that God created male and female. And that there is a way that a man 
should be. There is a way that a woman should be. And that our maker who designed us is the only one who has the authority to tell us exactly what that is. Now, I stated earlier in this sermon series that I had contemplated turning this section of the sermon series into its own two or three part mini series where we deal with the topic of like a man. And I've not opted to do that. I'm going to try to get through all of this this morning in one message. It's not possible in one message that I deal with everything that a man is supposed to be. But I want to hit on some of the more obvious things that we see in our text that teach us how a man ought to be. We see, first of all, that he faces God. Men, our goal, our design is that we stand before God. And ladies, the same is true for you. But ultimately, we answer to God, we stand before God, we face God. A real man does not turn his back on God, which is what Satan was trying to get Job to do. A real man does not turn his back on God and go his own way. But a real man turns to God and faces God and gets ready to hear whatever it is that God has to say. The next thing we see about a man, he doesn't need pampered. You know, when we see the story of Job, most people look at God's answer to Job and they think to themselves, well, that was pretty harsh. Wow, Job really needed someone to be tender and hold him in his time of hurt and pain. And God doesn't even answer any of Job's questions. He just really tells Job how great God is. There are some that look at this and even think, well, God's kind of being a bully here. And if you believe, if you believe that men are supposed to be pampered, If you believe that what men need in their time of uncertainty and trial is they need to just be held and coddled and loved, then yeah, I guess God's being pretty mean here. But you look at how God chooses to deal with a man, and you will find it is straight, it is direct, and God does not pamper Job. There are a lot of reasons that men fail. But listen to me carefully when I say this. As men fail, so does the culture. It starts with us, men. And it is an undeniable statistic, a fact of science, that when men begin to fail, the community fails with them. In fact, when you look at the number one marker that indicates everything from prison time to homelessness, violence, crime, 
alcohol and drug abuse in males and females, the number one indicator or statistic, if we want to use that, that those people have in common is a failed father. Either no father in the home or a father who was absent in their life. I cannot overstress the importance of men being men of God and understanding there's a certain design that is necessary for our families and our communities to thrive the way God has designed them to thrive. We need men to be men. And so there's an attack on men. There are different ways that men fail that ultimately lead to chaos and destruction in the community. Sometimes, sometimes it is on the side of pride and arrogance and, and violence and, and men not taking their God-given design and bringing it under the authority of God and sometimes men get out of their, their God-given design there. What we're dealing with in this particular culture is the opposite. We instead, we have men who have become, generally speaking, weak, pampered sissies. Who are afraid to say what is true. Afraid to stand for what is right. Afraid of conflict, afraid of doing anything that could possibly bring about harm. And we have been trained as men in this current culture, we have been trained to take our masculinity and trade it in for femininity. It's the culture that we live in. We are a pampered age. And it's actually a dangerous thing when you pamper men. It's a dangerous thing when you pamper boys. It's happening. The irony is that pampering boys and pampering men does the exact opposite of what you think it will do. I don't know the number of people. I said this in the first service. I probably could sit down and figure it out. But the honest truth is I don't actually know the total number of school teachers who are teaching children in grades kindergarten through third grade, who have told me in just the last year that their classrooms are full of violence. That boys, it's almost always boys, not girls, that boys are throwing things, boys are hitting their teachers physically, closed fists, punching teachers. Pulling hair. Classes are having to be dismissed because boys are out of control. I literally know of a school recently that had a full-on meeting to discuss what they do with their kindergartners and first graders who are being violent towards their teachers. You want to know why? Because those boys are pampered. They are pampered boys. It's a fact. I say it unashamedly. Send those boys to live with me for two weeks. It'll be done. And I mean it. I actually do. 
I've had pamper boys before that would come in and out of the house. And then at my house, I wouldn't put up with that garbage. It's my house. You ain't going to act like that here. I have literally at times had parents in my house tell their kids, you can't act like that in Joplin's house. What? But they can act like that on the outside of the door, which is why they do. Because they are pampered. They are not treated like boys. We don't expect them to have respect and to respect authority. And when, this is what's crazy, this is what's happening in schools, folks. And I'm sorry, if you love our school system and you feel like I'm being mean, I'm sorry. It's just a fact. This is happening in our schools. And you know what happens with most of these little punks? That after they cause a disturbance and after they hit the teacher and after they've pulled hair and after they've messed things up, they get sent to their own little space where they get some snacks and they get to play games until they decide they're not angry anymore so they can come back in. They are rewarded for their behavior. And here's the, here's the fact. We have forgotten how to be men. Ladies, please. Please don't be frustrated with what I'm about to say. But you all do not know how to raise boys. And I, I hate it that a lot of men don't either nowadays, and you, and, and you, can't, you can't trust your, your men to do it. I hate that. It's awful. But you don't know how to raise boys. You don't know the number of times I've had to tell my wife, these are boys, they're not girls, it's fine, let me deal with this. And there's been a handful of times when it's sort of like, well, this is, what, this is what women want to do. They want to pamper. Like, oh, it's okay, son. It's okay, boy. I'm like, no, it's not. Stop. We don't pamper. This was wrong. It needs to be dealt with like it's wrong. We're developing these young men into boys. They don't need to be coddled all the time. And what's happened is us men, especially us young men, we've kind of grown up in this age of time where we feel like, this is just the way things are supposed to be. There, trust me, I know because I get the emails. I know because I hear it. There are people who will hear what I've said this morning and say, that guy shouldn't be a pastor. That's not very nice. But look at how God responds to Job. God is just straightforward with Job. Who are you? Where were you when I created the heavens and the earth? Where were you when I came up with the idea for rain? Where were you when I figured out what I would do to make it turn to ice? Where were you when I, when I did what I did? Who are you, Job? He doesn't even address Job's complaint. He doesn't even really answer Job's questions. And I want you to note something about Job. Don't miss it. God said Job was the most righteous man on the face of the earth. Do not miss that. You want to know how God deals with righteous men? Right here. Job was a man. And God knew it. And you remember, in the, in the beginning of this sermon series... We saw and we learned that God actually created man to play this great big role in God's eternal plan to shame Satan and the fallen angels who did turn their back on God. Even though they knew God in the fullness of who he was, God said, you watch. 
You watch man. You watch how he will be faithful to me. You watch Job, and you see that Job will stand. So we know that Satan's watching, and I find it interesting the two times God says, Hey, Job, like a man, come stand before me. And God doesn't give Job the answers that we would like to see given. And Job still stands there like a man and listens to what his God has to say. This is how God deals with a righteous man. This is, this is actually what maturity looks like. And I will concede, I will, that when a man is a child, when a man is still nothing more than a boy, you have to coddle him. It's, it's unfortunate if you don't want him to leave. There are men that I literally have to coddle. Otherwise, their little feelings are going to get hurt. They're going to leave sad. They need Joplin to coddle them. If I talk to them the way I would talk to my own son, if I talk to them the way I talk to a handful of men that are actually spiritual, that are mature, they leave with their little feelings hurt. But Job wasn't that. Job was the most righteous man on the face of the earth. And God says, here's how I deal with those men. I speak direct, I speak straight, and I remind them who's God and who's not. This man does not waver in the face of uncertainty. He's got some strength about him. We see that this man lives for something bigger than himself. It's one of the things about God's design for men. Men, we instinctively crave to live for something bigger than ourselves. And I'll tell you something, there are a few things that are more powerful, if any, than a bunch of men who come together unified, that we're going to use our lives to live for a bigger and greater purpose than ourselves. It's in us. It's part of who we are. It's something that we literally crave to be part of something bigger than ourselves. And ultimately, we answer to someone greater than ourselves. Real men have a sense of living for a greater purpose than their own lusts, their own passions, their own desires. God says to Job, you stand like a man. God is the maker. He is the designer. Obviously, if there is a way that a man is to be, there is also a way that a woman is to be as well. That is not the thrust of my sermon this morning. God stands, has Job come forward, and Job stands before God, first of all, as a man before his maker. Secondly, we see Job as a man before his judge. So everything leading to chapter 38, is, it sort of has this feeling of eventually, eventually Job is going to get to God, and Job is going to get some answers. But we find out that's not what happens at all. I mean like this. God's on the throne and Job's on the stand. You need to understand something. God will never sit on the stand for you to be his judge. Never, ever, ever. You can think all day long and you can think all of your life that you're finally going to have your moment with God where you get to sit on the throne and he sits on the stand and he answers your questions. Nope, nope, and nope. God makes it real clear. That is not the relationship here. It does not matter what your questions are. It does not matter what you think or feel. God is the judge. And immediately right out of the gate, as soon as God shows up, he says, let's get the question started. Job, you're on the stand. I sit on the throne. And so let me start to question you before you even open your mouth. We see a man before his judge. 
And you need to understand something, folks. Every single one of you will stand before God and He will be your judge. And just like Job, everything you probably thought you would say in that moment, everything you thought you would do in that moment, you'll be left with nothing to say. The number of God's rhetorical questions yeah, they really, they really didn't need an answer. Like, were you there when I created the heavens and the earth? No. Were you there when I told the sea where to stop? No. Were you there when I told light how to work? No. It's all rhetorical questions. God's not even really expecting an answer from Job. He's simply pointing out that, Job, I am the judge and you are not. We need a renewed sense of who God is. One of the greatest problems that we face is that we begin to see God as He's just like one of the boys. He's just like one of us. And, and once we could finally get to Him and have a chance to tell Him how we feel and, and let Him answer to us, then we'd have some answers. Then we'd have justice. Then God could finally vindicate Himself. Understand something. That is such a diminished view of God. And it is the goal of the, the evil and it is the goal of Satan to get us to see God in that context. And somehow he's just, he's just one of us that ultimately if we could all get to him, he's going to answer to us. Listen, not only does God not answer to you, he doesn't answer to us collectively. It's not as if all of us get to get together and decide what is right and what is wrong and what is righteous and what is unrighteous. And then finally decide we're all going to approach God together. No, sir, no, ma'am. You have got to have your eyes open. He is God all alone. He is judge and each of us will stand before him and give an account for our lives. Job stands before his maker. He stands before his judge. And third this morning we see a man before his God. Almighty God. He's more than just your maker. Now that matters that he made you. That means the design that He created you for, He has the right to say. He is your maker. That matters. It matters that He is your judge. You will stand before God. You will give an account to Him. And you will stand before Him and no one else. You're not giving an account to me. You're not giving an account to your wife or your husband or your parents or your kids or the church. When it's all said and done, you will stand before God and you will give an account. And that matters. But when you look at Job 38, 40, 41, 39, what you see in these chapters is that Job is a man before God Almighty. And when we see that, we realize we really have nothing to do, nothing to say, nothing to argue. God starts off with, where were you? Where were you? That's where he starts off. That's his first question, then he leads into it. He says, dress like a man. Where were you? Now the obvious answer was you weren't even anywhere. You weren't even, you weren't even created yet. You didn't even exist. But God goes on. Where were you when it was all created? Where were you when the stars began to shine? Where were you when the sun began to, to, to burst forth heat and light? Where were you when the earth began to orbit the earth? Where were you when I made it into a place where... 
mankind could live and I made it have its own atmosphere. And Where were you when I raised up the water out of the deep? And where were you when I brought the mountains up and I gave the seas their boundaries? And where were you when I created it all? I took some time this week when I was preaching on this or, and getting ready to preach. And I honestly spent time meditating on what did it look like? Have you ever done that? Have you ever taken the time to think like, what did it look like when the first star was created? Or did God like make all of them just poof, happen? What, what was it like when that light shone out of darkness? What was it like when the earth was formed? It's hard for our minds to fathom the power and greatness of God. And that's what God is doing. He's not really rebuking Job. Notice he never says, Job, you were a sinner. Job, Satan was right. You turned your back on me. Job, you've lost your unrighteousness. Job, I was wrong about you. You weren't the most righteous man on the face of the earth. God never says any of those negative things about Job's character. What God says is, Job, get your eyes off of you, and, and you want to talk to me, well, let's talk about who I really am. Our minds can't really fathom the greatness of God. As I tried to this week, my mind went to passages of Scripture that I've always read and thought, I can't understand that. Look what Revelation chapter 1, verses 13 through 18 tell us about Jesus now in heaven. What he looks like there. It says, In the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest, the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. Just hold that there for a moment. Could you imagine, like, what does that even look like? It says his voice was like the roar of many waters. I mean, what I'm trying to picture it. I'm meditating, like, what does that sound like? What does it sound like when a man opens his voice and the power that comes out of it is like the power of the rush of a waterfall. I can't understand that. But that is Jesus. That is who He is. Flames in His eyes. His feet like bronze. Let's read on. In His right hand He held seven stars. From His mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And His face was like the sun Shining in full strength. Last night we were driving home from a wedding that we had the privilege to be part of this weekend. And on the way home, the sun was coming down. It was beautiful. And at one point it was like halfway down where you could only see the top half of it. And it was orange. Because it was all the way down on the other side of the atmosphere. And it was, it was really pretty. But it was so bright you could hardly see. Like... Yeah, I had to keep my eyes down and, and to where I was not looking at the sun itself. What is it like when a man's face is shining in the full brightness of the sun? I'm, here's what I'm telling you. We can't fathom the greatness of God. 
And what I'm telling you is, is that instead of marching in and facing God like you think that you're going to and asking Him everything that you think He better answers, you trust me, the moment you actually see Him for who He is, your mouth will zip it. You won't have nothing to say. Instead, you will fall to your knees and you will fall to your face and you will say, I repent in ashes and dust. I have nothing to say to this holy and perfect and powerful and eternal God. I am just a man or I am just a woman and I have nothing to demand of this God. I'm telling you, he's not just one of the fellas. He is God and he is God all alone. Consider Job's response after everything that God says in Job chapter 42. Job answered and said, I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you will make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of my ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. I pray the Holy Ghost will help you see what I'm about to say this morning. This is the most righteous man on the face of the earth. That's who this is. This isn't some wicked, evil sinner. This isn't some person that's an enemy of God. This is the most righteous man on the face of earth. And when he sees God, his response is, I repent. I heard of you, but my eyes have seen you. And I repent. I am nothing in your presence. Oh, may God help us to see this morning. We could never really fathom His holiness, His greatness, His majesty, who He is. And God's questioning of Job. Why is God questioning Job the way that He is? Understand something. I want you to see it with me this morning. God is not coming down on Job. God is proud of Job. God's been bragging on Job. God has told Satan himself, have you taken a look at Job? Satan has said, oh yeah, Job's just serving you for the wrong reasons. You take away the blessing and you throw him, let pain come to his life and he'll turn his back on you. God said, no he won't. No he won't. Satan said, prove it. God said, okay. Go. Go. God's bragging on his son. And when it's all done and we come to this final moment, God says, now watch this. Job, stand like a man. I love this. I mean, I love it. And God steps up and here's what God says. This is what God's saying in all of this. Job, even if I tried to answer you, you could not understand. I am so high above you. I am so powerful beyond your comprehension. You are just a created being. You you couldn't even understand if I tried to make you understand. All that you need to know is that I am God. 
and that I am your God. That's all you have to know. I've used the analogy like this to us to try to understand, like, why doesn't God answer these questions? I want you to imagine that you go home from church and you decide that rather than having dogs or cats or whatever you have, that you want to have a pet ant. And you go out to the sidewalk and you find the cutest little ant that you can and you catch it and you build this little home and you decide that you are going to teach that ant math. For four hours a day you sit with your ant and you try to teach it math but it just can't learn math. As crazy as an analogy that is, that's what it's like between you and God. And it will help for you to see that. God could spend every waking moment of the rest of your life trying to explain to you why He does what He does, why He operates like He operates, and your little tiny, finite mind could never understand it. And God says, Job, you don't have to understand it all. You don't have to know everything that's happening. But what you've got to know is that I am God. And I am God all alone. I was the one who made you. I was the one who created the heavens and the earth. I'm the one to whom you answer. I'm the one to whom you will stand. And it is me alone that you need to pledge your allegiance to. You've got to be faithful to me no matter what you're enduring. It doesn't matter the uncertainty of your life. It doesn't matter what questions you don't have answers answers to the one thing you've got to know is that I am God and I created you that's what God is doing with Job Job get it settled settled again and again and again that you are not me you cannot understand me somebody here this morning needs to hear that you don't need to understand it all, and you couldn't even if you tried. That even if God did take the time to explain to you the depths of everything that you want to know, you still couldn't understand it. That you were a finite being in the presence of this Almighty God. And this morning, if you are not right with that God, this morning... Could you imagine being an enemy of that God? What are you going to do? It's amazing to me the stupidity of things I've heard about people that are proud they're sinners. Can't wait to get to hell to party with their buddies. You idiot. There ain't no partying in hell. There are no exit doors in hell. You know, we, the, the, the Bible teaches us that angels, angels can go from like one dimension to another. Sometimes they can even materialize uh, and, and, and be mistaken as people. It, warned, it tells us that, you know, to be good to everybody because you never know when you might entertain angels unaware. We see in, in, J, in, the, in the book of Job that angels come and answer to God. We see that angels at one point in time, like they're used to wipe out at times in, in, in war. Occasionally an angel killed hundreds of thousands of people. One angel. Hell was made to keep them eternally. Whatever hell is and however God has created it, it is so powerful that even angels can't escape. 
What, you think you're going to have a party there? This is the most awful, horrendous place you could ever imagine. I could not imagine being an enemy of God. The wrath that is to come. Those of you that are upset in your mind and in your heart with God, you've bought the lies of the devil in your life, and you're like, I don't understand God, I don't understand this, I don't understand why. You don't have to understand, but listen to me very carefully this morning. He is God, and He is God all alone. And whether you like it or not, He will be your judge, and He is your maker, and He is God. And according to Philippians chapter 2, it says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That, that's this reference to everybody. Those that have died, those that, have, that, that are going to rise, angels, people, all the hosts of heaven, every knee will bow and every tongue confess That Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is what will happen when every single person stands before Him eventually. It's going to happen. I pray that it happens in your life before it's too late. That you bend the knee... And you confess to Him who He is and you repent and turn to Him now. I'm going to ask our worship team if you guys would come. I want to conclude with two things that I've already touched on. First of all, most soft and weak people Biblically illiterate. Consider God's speech to Job to be no real answer at all. But you are not God. And nobody answers better than God. God knew exactly what Job needed to hear. And God told Job exactly what God needed to say. God is in reality exposing our human limitations to discern the heights and depths of God to discern why God does what God does and why God does things in our lives like we cannot know and God is he's exposing that he's teaching that to Job and secondly two times once in chapter 38 and once in chapter 40 When God begins his discourse to Job two times, he says, Job, gird yourself like a man. Stand like a man. Be faithful to me like a real man of God is faithful to his God. I personally believe. Right? Remember in Job chapter 2 when God says to Satan, uh, have you considered Job? I thought you said that he would turn. And Satan answers. Satan answers, well, 
he, the only reason he didn't turn is because you let him keep his health. Satan knew. Satan was watching. And God knew this. Job is the subject of this conversation that originated between God and Satan. I believe with all of my heart, Satan is in hearing distance here. When God says the first time, Hey, Job, like a man, come forth. Stand before me in integrity, unlike Satan did. Unlike a third of the angels who followed him and turned on me. God gives it to Job hard and straight. Doesn't even answer his question. Instead says, my majesty is beyond your ability to comprehend. God says, I'm not done yet. Job, like a man, stand forth. Gird yourself for action. Man, we need men of God again. Man, we need them. Men who are not cowards. I'm out of time. I told you I really I could have three sermons I thought about putting together on just what it is to be like a man. You know, in the end, the first thing that God judges when you look at Revelation, and you talk about the lake of fire, the first word that God uses is cowards. You know what a coward is? It's someone who's completely selfish. Jesus was the opposite of that. Jesus was as selfless as they can be. And he laid down his life for us. We need men who are not cowards. Men who will stand for God. Men who will speak what is true. Men of integrity who don't waver in times of uncertainty. 